0: What I want to talk about tonight is actually a topic which I think, you know, oftentimes gets overlooked. You know, there are many, many people who study the Talmud, uh, mm-hmm. both in a yeshiva setting and also outside the context of of yeshiva. Right. But there isn't a lot of focus on sort of how the daf of the Gemara, which is called the tzur HaDaf, actually became the default text that we used to study whenever we studied Gemara. Uh, many years ago, when the steinzaltz Gemara was uh, first written, uh, there was a lot of controversy surrounding the uh, Shenzel's Gemara, uh, particularly in Haredi communities. I mean, there are there a lot of issues that Haredim had with the Shenzel's Gemara, but one of the issues they had was that the Shenzel's Gemara initially uh, changed the Tsurad Hadaf. So if you look, for example, at the early versions of the Shenzel's Gemara, you can see that it looks totally different um, than a standard page of the Talmud. It's actually interesting if you look at the later editions of the Steinsalz Talmud, you can see that they brought back the traditional Surah Hadaf. So, for example, the new Koran uh, translations of the Talmud, which I think use uh, the Steinsalz, uh, at least part of the Steinsalz text, are worked in conjunction with Steinsalz. So the new Koran version of the Talmud actually has the traditional Surah Sadaf, and it's kind of almost hard to find these days, the old Steinsaltzes that have the old Surah Hadaf. And it raises the question, really, what's going on in the Tzor HaDaf, right? Why is it so sacrosanct? Why do people assume that, you know, it's like halakha, like, you know, it has to be that we have this page of the Talmud, looks a very specific way. And why do we assume that, you know, playing around with the Tzor HaDaf is somehow like a religious breach? It's not only an academic breach, but it's like a religious breach. So before we talk about the history and the evolution of the Tzor HaDaf, uh, I want to talk for a few minutes about the actual Tzor HaDaf as, as it currently is. Uh, it, it's actually an amazing uh, compilation. If you look, for example, at, at the, what I have on the screen here, you can see on the left side a traditional surot hadaf, right, which is how it's printed in every uh, edition of the Vilna Shas that we have. And on the right side is a citation from a book by a scholar named Barry Winfheimer, who's a professor. Uh, I'm not sure where. So I think somewhere somewhere in northwest. I think Northeastern University he wrote a book on the history of the Talmud, and he breaks down a surot hadaf. Uh, using the traditional structure, but providing some historical context as to what exactly is going on on the Torah Tadaf. Like what exactly is happening? How did the daf evolve to become the DAF that we know? So, for example, if you look in the middle, obviously you have the Talmud, or in some Dapim you have the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah is written in the second century, and the Mishnah is a, a text which is compiled in the land of Israel. Okay. Now, the Gemara, which he called here, he calls here the Talmud. Right is compiled much later, you know, hundreds of years later, third century, fourth century, fifth century, right? And it's also compiled in what's currently known as known as Iraq, right? It's the Babylonian Talmud, right? Is is was written and compiled in what's known as Iraq. So not only do you have a historical shift in terms of time period from the second century all the way to the fifth sixth century, but even geographically, you're talking about going from Israel to Iraq. Now that's not a massive geographic shift. It's both in the Middle East, right? But if you think of how the Talmud is structured, the page is structured. On the right side of the page, you have Rashi. Okay, now Rashi is a 12th-century commentator, and he lives in Franco-Germany. Right? He lives basically in Germany. And he's the most popular commentary, right, on the standard DAF of the Talmud. Okay. Um, the on the left side of the page, you have the Baliatosvot. Baliatosvot are Rashi's grandchildren. Okay, now they live. In the 13th century, also Franco-Germany. But again, if you think about the evolution here, you're talking about texts written in the second century in the Mishnah to the third and fourth century, fifth century, the Gemara, moving from Israel to Iraq. And then you skip from the fifth century, you know, 700 years later to the 12th century, to Rashi, right, who lives in Germany. Here you're moving far away from Iraq to Germany. And then you go from Germany, again, still staying in the same geographic space, but you're moving historically another 200 years right, to the Baliatosvot, who are Rashi's children, grandchildren. Okay, so so far, I think the daf is probably pretty familiar. What's interesting, though, I want to point out here is the evolution in terms of historical continuity and also the geographic evolution, that it goes from Israel to Iraq to Germany. Okay, now what else do we have on the page? What's interesting is, is that there's a commentary on the left side of the page, over here, Rabbeinu Hananel. In English, you can see it over here. Rabbeinu Hananel actually predates Rashi. Okay, and unfortunately, he doesn't get a lot of press. Okay, everybody knows Rashi. Most many people don't even know who Rabbi Nachmano was. May not have studied Rabbi Nachmano. What's interesting about Rabbi Nachmano is that not only does he predate Rashi, but he's actually from North Africa, which is interesting if you think about it, right? Because that just shows you just how diverse the geography is on the Tsur Sadaf. That not only does it go in the Middle East in terms of Israel and then Iraq in the center structure, but actually before we get to Rashi. Right there's a text that predates Rashi, namely Rabbi Hananel, who's in North Africa. So you have this text that's studied all over the place and is jumping around from North Africa to Franco-Germany, right? And that's not the end of the conversation, right? It continues to evolve. So, for example, if you look on the right side, right, you have a text called the Masor Hashas. The Masor Hashas is a Venice, a, a text from Venice, also in the world of Ashkenaz, 16th century. Now, the, this comment, this little thing over here, the Masorah Hashas that you see on the right side and the, the outer margin, right? What it tries to do is reference parallels. Okay, so for example, if the Gemara has a text, it has a parallel elsewhere, so the Masorah Hashas will reference that parallel. Okay, now that's particularly relevant after the thirteenth, fourteenth century when the Bialytosvot come on the scene, because the whole methodology of the Bialytosvot is to basically do to the Gemara what the Gemara did to the Mishnah. In other words, the Gemara sees the Mishnah as one organic unit, and it always tries to ask and try and solve contradictions in the Mishnah, and the Bali Tos will come along and say, well, wait a second, let's do to the Gemara what the Gemara did to the Mishnah, meaning let's see the entire Shash, right, all two million words as one organic unit and try to basically contrast the various Sugyot. So it makes sense, basically, that after the Toso will come around in the 14th century, it takes 100 years, but eventually someone's going to come along and say, wait a second, before we get to the Tosvot, let's sensitize the reader to the parallel texts, right? To the texts that are going on in other sugyot when you're learning, right, the page at hand. Now, again, it doesn't end there. If you look, for example, in the top left, you have what's called the Ein Mishpat ne'er Mitzvah. Okay, Ein Mishpat ne'er Mitzvah is a 16th century work that basically tries to link the page of the Talmud to the codes, okay? Because in a standard page of the Talmud, it's almost impossible to know how we rule on a given halachic text. Okay, there are rules that we have that sort of, you know, underlie Talmudic discourse, but if you look at the text by itself, it's hard to know what the bottom line is. Sometimes you'll have, it will say like, Hilchita, the halacha is X. That's a later edition from the time of the Gaonim. But if you look at the text is, it's hard to know really what the bottom line is. So this Ein Mishpat Ner Mitzvah, basically what he wants to do is he wants to link this text over here with all the codes that have come into existence post Right, the redaction of the Talmud. So, for example, he references who? He references the Rambam, right, the Tur, and the Shulchan Aruch. So what he does basically is he says, this text, which starts in the 2nd century, goes to the 3rd, 4th, 5th century, continues in the 11th century, goes to Rashi in the 12th century, in the 14th century, right? Let's not forget that there's a whole parallel halakha conversation going on during this time, and what he wants to do is link the page to the Talmudic conversation. And what he does is he references all the, pa- all the passages in the Gemara with, allusion- with, with sort of cross-references to the actual halacha. Now, the last thing I'll show you is the comment of the grah. Now this is actually even more, I think the most fascinating piece here. The, the grah lives in the 18th century. And what the grah does is he shows you his textual emendations. It's called the Haggad Hagra. The Hagaud Hagra basically is an attempt to say there are certain manuscript problems that the Grah picks up on. And what the Grah tries to do, basically, is sensitize you, right, to the manuscript issues and make small changes, right, that he thinks will make the text read more smoothly. The reason why I think this is so interesting is because if you read the Talmud as is, oftentimes you'll find that in Rashi, he'll say, for example, Hachigar Sinan, which basically means, here is my manuscript, okay? Tosfurt also will comment on Rashi's manuscripts, and what the girls picking up on here basically is that the Talmud, before it gets printed in the 15th century, right, it's basically printed as individualized manuscripts. It's not printed as an organized text. Okay, so you have fragments that are discovered, and what the rishonim are working with are not sort of systematized printed texts, but rather manuscripts. And what the girls in the 17th century is reminding the reader is that even though there's so much conceptual. And halachic analysis articulated by, by the Balat and by Rabbi Nachman, et cetera. Let's not forget there's a foundational project going on here, which is simply to figure out what is the accurate text. Okay, so the first thing I want to show today, just sort of like, what is the Seward hadaf? You know, what is it? How does? What are, what are its composite parts? Right? And, and what does it show about the nature of the experience? So basically, what's going on here is that each layer, in terms of The page of the Talmud is coming from a different place historically, different geography, and trying to contribute something unique to the larger corpus of the Talmudic text. Now, I want to show you something pretty amazing. Can you you see the new screen I'm showing you here? Can you see this? Looks like a jumbled up thing. Now, if I showed this to you and I said, what is that? Okay, you'd probably say it's probably like a Latin translation of the Talmud. Because right, it looks like this, meaning if you look, for example, this page, right, and then you skip to this page, they look very similar. Okay, Now, you would say, okay, the words aren't in Hebrew. The words seem to be in Latin, and it looks like basically the same thing, just maybe a Latin translation of the Talmud. Okay? Actually, it's not what it is at all. There, there's a really interesting article by a scholar named Joel Finkelman who talks about the evolution of uh, the pages of the Talmud, And he points out that this text actually is a Latin version of the Christian Bible with two Christian commentaries on the side. Okay. It looks exactly like a Talmudic page, but not only is it not Talmudic page, it's actually a Christian biblical reference with Catholic commentaries on the side. Okay. And that raises the interesting question well, wait a second, you know. We think about the Talmud as basically being, you know, ours, right? So we think about um, we think about the Talmud as being ours. We think about, you know, the Talmudic text as being our text. Well, is that really true historically, right? Is it really true historically that this text that we know today actually originated with us? Or is it something that we picked up, right, and just stuck, stuck with us for many hundreds of years? If it didn't stick with us, well, why, right? Well, what is it about the text that lends itself? The type of learning that we want to do. So Yalfeklemi points out here that the Talmudic text of Surah Hadaf that we have certainly did not begin with us. Okay, in fact, it was a standard model for people studying texts in the Middle Ages. Texts from the 15th century have basically a text in the middle, a primary text in the middle, and commentaries on the side. Okay, so even though you know people could think, oh, the Surah Hadaf is me, you know, coming back to Sinai, it doesn't. Okay, it actually only starts in the 15th century or so. And actually, it starts originally in the non-Jewish world. If you look, for example, I had there are other examples you have here, I'll just show you quickly, show you what the Talmud looked like for the Surah Hadaf. If you look, for example, at this, this is a 15th-century manuscript of Rashi. Okay. But what's interesting in here, what do you see from this text? You see that there's no Talmud okay? This is just Rashi's commentary, and it has no Talmud, okay? In fact, if you look at another example of this, you can see over here, this is a passage, this is a 13th century manuscript, where you see the Talmud in the middle, and you see Rashi's commentary on the side, okay? But, there's no Rabbeinu Hananel, Rabbeinu Hananel predates Rashi, right? There's no Balei Atosot. I'm not even sure if this is early 1300s, I'm not even sure if the Balei Atosot is accessible. OK, what you see basically is, is, that until you get to this, right, this left handed uh, picture over here, there's a lot of this. OK, this is how Jews studied Talmud. They had manuscripts, right? The manuscripts had errors, all types of problems with the manuscripts. And basically, this was the way Jews were studying Talmud. If Jews wanted to study Rashi, oftentimes they were using this, right? They weren't using something like we know today as the standard Surah Hadaf. Okay. In fact, as I pointed out before, this example that I mentioned at the beginning, the example of the surah hadaf, which, which is comes, which is a Christian example, actually originates outside the Jewish world. Okay. And this raises an interesting question, really, which is, well, wait a second, how did we get the Talmud that we have today? Right. In other words, how did the Talmud that we use as the surah hadaf? How did it become the surah hadaf? And not only that, but why is it that if it started originally with the non jews Right. How did all of a sudden get stuck? How did we get how did we stay with it? And why is it that we stuck with it, but nobody else stuck with it? Like, for example, I, I assume that if you study other legal disciplines or other religious disciplines, I assume the standard zur hadaf that we have is not the default. You know, I, I never went to law school, but I assume if you study tort law at Harvard, right, it doesn't look like the surah hadaf. Or I assume, for example, if you're studying the Harvard Divinity School and you're studying, you know, a contemporary, I don't know, Latin Latin commentaries on the Bible, I assume it doesn't look like the surah hadaf. For some reason, the Surat Haddaf that we have, it starts outside of Judaism, but ultimately it becomes very Jewish. So this raises the question, really, what happened, right? How did the Surah Haddaf become the Sura Haddaf? So the history here is actually quite fascinating. Basically what happens is, the earliest uh, printing that we have, it really seems to be what we know as the Surah Hadaf is basically something that happens... Um, in the ni- in the 1500s. Okay, basically, the idea of printing and the phenomenon of like Hebrew printing as like a standard uh, work that people are using to make money really begins like in the 1460s. Okay, now it really starts to happen in three primary places: uh, the first, Italy; the second, the Iberian Peninsula; and then there's one book which is printed in Constantinople. Okay, now what's really interesting about this is that. The printing that's done in Italy has Rashi and Tosafot. The printing that's done in the Iberian Peninsula only has Rashi and does not have Tosafot. And that's not surprising why because Rashi as a commentary, <clears throat> excuse me, on the Talmud becomes an extremely pom- popular commentary. It allows the student to basically study the text without a teacher. And therefore it spreads like wildfire throughout the Jewish world. The baliatosvot have a very different methodology. The baliatosvot are not interested in explaining the text as is. What they're interested in doing is trying to harmonize many conflicting texts that are spread throughout the Babylonian Talmud, right? It's called the dialectical method. They're trying to take convergent texts and try and show that there's no contradiction. Now, what's interesting is this methodology did not become initially very popular in Sephardic countries. Okay, Sephardic countries were primarily interested in practical halacha, in trying to deduce bottom-line law from the Talmudic text. The classic exemplar of this is the Rambam and the Rift. The Rift predates the Rambam. The Rift basically tries to take the Talmud and extract out the the pieces that are relevant for practical halacha. And because the methodology of the Balayatotzot was not particularly popular in Sephardic countries, when the Talmud is printed in, in its earliest forms, not as a massive set, but just like a let's say, different pieces or small masekhtot, so it's only printed in the Iberian Peninsula with Rashi. Because again, think about from a consumer perspective, right? Who's buying the commentary of the Talmud in Sephardic countries, right? Maybe some great scholars, but the average person selling the Talmud is not particularly interested in the commentary of the Balayatot, so he's interested in the Talmud the commentary of Rashi, and maybe what he has access to so let's say, for argument's sake, the Rith. What's interesting, parenthetically, is eventually the methodology of the Balayatozo does make its way to Sephardic countries. For example, the Rashba and the Ritva are people, are Rishonim, who bring, Sephardic Rishonim, who bring that methodology to Sephardic countries, although Professor Chaim, Chaim Semen points out that there's one caveat, which is actually quite fascinating, which is that when the Sfaradik was shown in bringing the methodology of the Balyatoslo, the Sfaradik countries, they use the methodology, but they only comment on the tractates, the Masechtot, which are relevant for practical halacha. So, for example, if you study the Ritva or the Rashba, you'll see that they're commenting almost exclusively, right, on the parts of the Talmud which are relevant for halacha practical halacha, because again, they're channeling this sort of inner. Uh, Svartic orientation, which is the primary goal of the halacha of the Talmud, is to deduce practical law, and therefore the methodology of the Tosvot is relevant for those tractates, right, that are relevant when it comes to trying to figure out uh, practical halach. Basically what you have is you have, again, the 1460s, right, you have the beginning of the Jewish printing press, the sense that the Talmud is going to be printing. What's interesting here, though, is again, the Talmud is only printed, right, based on individualized Maserto. That are particularly studied in this specific locale. For example, in contemporary yeshivas, there are like six or seven masekto are studied in cycles. Right? If you study in a classical yeshiva, all right, there's atypical in this sense. We study non-traditional masekto. If you study, for example, in the Mir yeshiva, or even in Gush and Shiva Harceon, right? So um, you, have, you, have, um, you have basically six or seven masektas that are studied in a cycle. Right. So, for example, if you want to sell masach at Megillah and the Mir Yeshiva, it's probably not going to be a big seller. Mm-hmm. Right. If you want to sell, sell masek at uh, Rosh Hashanah in Gush, maybe someone's going to learn it, you know, during Elosman, But for the most part, it's not a popular sale. If you want to sell Masek at if you want to sell Masach at Bava Metziah, if you want to sell Ketubo, Kedushin, those Masech, those Masechot, they'll sell very well. So it's the same thing in the Middle Ages. Middle Ages, basically, a certain Masechot, which are more popular, what happens is in the 14th, in the 15th century, you have a printing press, which is printing individualized Masakhto. So some of them have Rashi, some of them have Rashi and Tosl, okay? Now, what's interesting is this starts to change when you get to the 16th century. If you look at this in the 16th century, you have a non-Jewish uh, scholar, actually a scholar of Judaica, and his name is Daniel Bomberg. Okay, he is a Christian. He's an intellectual. He's a Hebraist. He's a Christian uh, printer of Jewish texts. And what he does basically for the first time that he lives between, say, he starts to print in the middle of the fifteenth century. And what he does for the first time is he starts to print the full set of the Talmud, Okay, now he's using a text which may be familiar to some of you, which is the Sansino text. Right, Sansino. Here ever hear the Sansino talmud Sansino talmud was trendy before art scroll. You know, now Sancino talmud is a, is a relic. You know, who learned who possibly uses the Sansino talmud nowadays, right? In the old days, right, when I was growing up, which I guess now, you know, I guess now was a long time ago. Right? So the Sansino talmud before all of a sudden art scroll became popular in the 80s, so the Sansino talmud was the Talmud you used if you wanted to get a translation, okay? So the Sonsino was a printer that happened, you know, around that, or in the 15th century. And basically this guy, Daniel uh, Bomberg, right? He starts to print the Talmud Based heavily on the Sansino edition. And what he uses is he uses its sword Hadaf, which I mentioned earlier, which originates outside the context of Jewish society, but it becomes printed in the Bomberg edition. Now, what the biggest novelty of the Bomberg edition, which is it's so amazing to think how this happens through a non-Jew, right, is the pagination, okay? Until the Bomberg edition of the Talmud is printed, like, for example, if you look, for example, the standard surah hadaf, if you look, for example, the page I have here, in, uh, in, if you look at here, in the, in the page I have here, you see it says here, chaf bet amad Okay, Chaf bet amad alf. Everybody who studied page of the Talmud, you know it says chaf bet amad alf. What's amazing about this is that chaf bet amad right, only comes to fruition because of this non-Jewish scholar named Daniel Bomberg. Okay? And Daniel Bomberg takes the text that we have Right, basically takes the Sansino text, instead of basically publishing small masekhas, what he does is he publishes the whole Talmud. Now, the reason why that's so important is because when you start to publish the text in its entirety, pagination becomes that much more critical. Okay, what's amazing about this is that before this era, when you look at the Rishonim, the Rishonim, when they're referencing pages in the Talmud, they can't reference it with precision. They can say, for example, towards the end of that chapter. They'll say towards the beginning of that chapter, towards the middle of the chapter. What happens over time, though, is that once Bomberg decides to publish with its pagination and the pagination becomes the norm, subsequently what he does is he publishes him instead of in the Rishonim saying, you know, this chapter. Right. He can put in that reshone the exact text that we he's referring to based on the pagination That's articulated in the Bomberg edition of the Talmud. And what's so amazing about this, basically, is that once Bomberg decides to publish this way, so eventually this becomes the standard pagination that we use up until this day. Meaning the whole idea of utilizing um, this type of surat hadaf originates outside of the Jewish world. Bomberg is a Hebraist, he's a scholar, he's an intellectual, he's a businessman, right? He's not a Jew, but he's somebody who decides to print the Talmud. And why he prints it's really fascinating. I recommend reading the Finkelman piece, but Finkelman is accessible online. He talks in much more detail as to what motivated him here. But what's so interesting about it is even though it originates with the outside, right? And even the pagination originates in the outside, has enormous staying power. this is something that Finkelman points out also, which I think is so fascinating, is that even though non-Jews, as I showed you earlier in the Latin example of the Christian Bible, were using this methodology in terms of studying a text with a text in the middle, they all eventually drop it, right? And we keep it, okay? Which is, in my opinion, the most amazing thing, right? And it makes you appreciate why, again, I'm not not defending art school giving it a hard time here. I'm saying it makes you appreciate why there is some power, right, to the critique of art scroll of Shteynzalt. I mean, even in the art scroll uh, edition of the Talmud, if you look at a standard art scroll edition of the Talmud, it has the translation, it has a text on one side and a translation, and it has a standard, uh, Surah, sorry, it has the Surah Hadaf on one side and then translation on the other. And what's amazing about the art scroll is you can't pack in the whole translation one-to-one. So what they do is they reprint the Surah Hadaf multiple times and they have like a line, right, on the translation page telling you which part of the Surah Hadaf this translation corresponds to. Because what they really want to do is anchor your experience of learning in the Surah Hadaf. Meaning even, even if you never look at the Surah Hadaf, they want to give you the experience that you're looking at something which is authentic. And this raises the question, which I think is the most interesting question is, why is it that we as Jews... Stuck to this text, right? What is it about the text, right? The structure of the text that for some reason resonated so powerfully with the Jewish community that from the 15th century until 2024, it's assumed that when you want to study Talmud, this is how you have to do it. And not only that, but if you play with it, if you toy with it, it somehow feels inauthentic, even though it's not in any way historically, right, connected to our experience to 15th century. So here I want to show you an interesting text. And here I'll show you, I'll share, I'll share a screen for a second. Um, I'll show you an interesting piece from Rav Salvechik. Rav Salvechik has a piece where he describes his own experience with learning Gemara. Okay? And here I'll read it to you. It's a very powerful piece. And he talks here about the, the personal encounter of learning Gemara. From pretty will make I'll make it a little bigger so everybody can see. He says... When I sit down to learn, I find myself immediately in the midst of the scholars of tradition. The relationship between us is personal. Rambam is on my right, Rabbeinu Tam is on my left. Rashi sits at the head and expounds. Rabbeinu Tam questions, Rambam rules, Ravid criticizes. They're all in my little room sitting around my table. They gaze upon me affectionately, playing with me in reasoning and tradition, encouraging and strengthening me like a father. Here's what he says. Study of Torah is not merely a didactic exercise, right? It's a monumental experience of comradeship among the generations, a commingling of spirits, a union of souls. He says here, those who transmitted the Torah and those who received it happened together upon a single historical inn. All the scholars of the tradition from the days of Moses until now befriended me, and these are my companions and comrades, right? When I resolve the words of the Rambam I see their radiant faces expressing satisfaction. Now this is a powerful insight, right? What's he saying here? He's saying, The experience of learning the Talmud, or the experience of learning Torah in general for the Jew, is not an academic exercise. I mean, it is academic, right? But it's more than that. It's basically taking a seat at the table, saying that I now am part of a conversation that has gone back to Moshe Rabbeinu and continues with me. The way I describe it to my students is: You ever seen? I'm sure most of you have seen the movie Back to the Future One, right? I know many of my students haven't seen Back to the Future One. Right. But I know that a lot of people, I'm sure most of you or many of you have seen Back to the Future One. OK, so Back to the Future One, he goes back in time. Right. And he goes back. Right. He, he goes back basically to this time period where he's sort of this sort of historical oddity. Right. And the question is, he uses all these terminologies. Right. That don't seem to make sense to people at that time. They always say the Talmud shows you that if you were to go back in time, the second century, even if you didn't speak Hebrew, as long as you could talk the language of the Mishnah, you're talking their language. You took the same time capsule from the Dock and back to the future and went forward in history to the third century, right, to Iraq, even if you didn't speak Aramaic. right, If you spoke a little bit of Aramaic, you could speak the Talmud. That same model works in the 13th century, in the 11th century in North Africa, 13th century in Franco-Germany, and it continues and it continues. So by studying the Talmud, what we're really doing, basically, is sort of taking part in a conversation, right, that brings all of Jewish history together. Right? In the dialogue of the Torah. If you look, for example, one more citation here, I have, I have here from Finkelman. Finkelman, in that essay, he, he has a really powerful citation. He says, He says, pay attention as well to the geographic spread of the voices written, referenced on the page. The Mishnah comes from the land of Israel, while the Talmud took shape in Tidus, Iraq. He says, every geographical region of rabbinic significance appears in the book even through the active study, the student can experience him or herself not only as knowledgeable in texts, but as part of a trans-historical, this is a great line, and transnational people as a participant in the transhistorical and transnational conversation. And I think really that explains why it is mm-hmm. that the Talmud, the pagination of the Talmud has really stuck, right? Because again, it's not the same thing if I just cut and paste a piece of, a piece of the page of the Gemara and teach it to my students, right, detached from the Surah Haddad. It's actually a really amazing thing for me as a teacher. If I give my students a piece of the Gemara from the Barilan ilan uh, search engine, and I cut and paste it and put it on the page, I'm telling you they react to it differently. They have a different interaction with the learning, and if I read it from them from the Surah Hadaf. And I really couldn't understand why, it's the same words. But I think experientially what's going on there is that when they see the page, and they see it basically as like a, a, a spaceship, that allows them to discover all the different dimensions of Jewish history, just looking at it, they feel like they're part of something bigger. Now, I'll just end by saying that this idea that the Talmud is basically an exercise in intergenerational learning is actually articulated in one place in the Talmud itself. The Gemara says in the Masechet Sanhedrin that the reason why the Talmud Bavli is called the Bavli, it says from the word balul, balul means swallowed up or all-encompassing, okay? And what's the significance of that? So in the 13th century, Rabbeinu Tam has an amazing observation. Rabbeinu Tam says that in his time, Jews only studied Talmud. They barely studied Mishnah. They barely studied Tanakh. They only studied Talmud. And he asks the question, why? Why did they spend so much time only studying Talmud? And he says, you know why? He says, because the Talmud itself says it's a text which is Balul. It's a text which includes everything, right? It includes what? The Mishnah, the Mikra, and the Gemara. It includes Mishnah texts, and includes biblical texts and includes, obviously, the analysis of the Gemara. And what he's saying there, basically, is not that if you study the Talmud, you cover mathematically the same amount of Mishnah, Mikra, and Gemara. What he's saying, basically, is that the reason why studying the Talmud is sufficient is because it's organic text. What does it do? It links, right, all the different layers of Jewish history, namely, in his time, the Torah, the Mishnah, and the Gemara into one. Right? And it gives the feeling, it gives the experience to the learner that what he's engaged in is an experience of trans-historical learning. All of a sudden, uh, Ravina and Ravashi are my best friends. I'm sitting at a table with uh, with uh, Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam. And all of a sudden, Rabbi Kiva Ager just pops out at me. And, you know, I imagine, I told my students that I imagine in like, you know, 20 years they're going to have an AI where you're going to have like, you know, when you learn Gemara, that all of a sudden when you have the chish from Rabbi Kiva he pops out to you as like a hologram. Right? And then all of a sudden, Rabbeinu does it, and then Rashi does it, and you're going to feel like you're sitting at the table with all these great figures. But if you think about it, that's exactly what's going on. So really what I want to show you today, and I'm happy to take any questions, is that the Surah is, is it's really an amazing history. right? It's a history not only in terms of what we have today, but how we got to what we have today is an amazing sort of confluence of historical ironies. right? That's something that starts outside of Judaism, becomes the paradigm of Judaism, a printer who's not self Jewish is the one who, you know, comes up with the idea of, you know, daf alf, you know, amud alf, and amud Bet, and the tzorid the hadaf. And all of a sudden, while all the non-Jews, you know, jump ship and leave the world of the Surat hadaf, for some reason, the Jews hold on to it. And the Jews, you know, are so committed to it that even when the first attempt since the 15th century to play with the tzorid hadaf, namely the shteynzalt example, right, is, is attempted, there's deep resistance. There's not only deep resistance in, you know, B'nai Brak or you know Measharim. There's eventually deep resistance even in the world of Koran, right? Khoran, which is a modern Orthodox publication in all their new editions of the Talmud. They use the they use the example with the Tsurat Hadaf, that for some reason the Tsurah Hadaf becomes so sacrosanct that we can't part with it. I want to argue that it says something about the nature of learning, how we experience learning, it really captures what Talmud Torah is all about. And somehow that became sort of symbolic of the Tzur Hadaf became symbolic of the larger project of studying Torah. So let to me take a few questions in the chat. The first one is, um, the Tosot Yom Tov from a Sephardic background? I don't think so. Um, I actually, the only reason why I'm pretty sure that's not true is because I have a student from Araita who's a direct descendant of the Tosot Yom Tov, and I'm pretty sure he was not of uh, Sephardic descent, but remember, the Tosot Yom Tov is not the Bali Tosot, okay? The Tosot Yom Tov is much later, okay? Uh, the Bali Tosot are, are, are a different group, Sometimes you'll have people who take upon the name of the Tosafot. For example, the Tosafot HaRush, right? Tosafot could also mean the additions, right? For example, if you live in Israel, so if you go to a store and you order a steak and they say, what side dishes do you want? What do you want? It's called the Tosafot, okay? So the side dishes is also the Tosafot, right? Not the Tosafot, right? but the Tosafot. I actually have a friend who teaches Gemara in American high school and we went out to dinner when she visited with my, my wife and she made she said she got confused and she said Yeshakem Tosafo, but it should have been Tosafo, right? But she's a Gemara teacher, so she said Tosafot, right? But anyway, my point is, is that the the yom tov is different. Now, what type of documentation did Rashi work with before he wrote? Ah, so that's the thing. Rashi's working with manuscripts, right? Rashi was not working with the Hadat that we have. You look, for example, what I showed you earlier. So I showed you that piece where it just has a page from the Gemara. So Rashi is working with manuscripts. How do we know that? Because Rashi always says, Haki Garcinan. Rashi says, this is my manuscript, right? Rashi's dealing with the text, a manuscript. And therefore, what he'll do is he'll change things. Because again, in his world, there is no formalized printed villain text like we have nowadays. So therefore he's working with fragments, so literally fragments, right? So those fragments were what he had. And sometimes he'll say, I have a different text than you, Baliatosto, right? He certainly was not working with the Sur Hadaf that we have. Were they bound by scrolls? I'm not sure. They certainly seem to be fragments that he's collecting, basically, that uh, he's studying the Talmud with. I mean, they may have been more elaborate fragments, may have been some of them probably more complicated. I maybe mean, maybe the reason why Rashi's called the Kuntras is because he re- Kuntras means the notebook. Rashi takes notes, right? He takes notes in all the different uh notebooks he uses in different yeshivas, but he's working definitely with uh, different manuscripts. Okay. Any last minute questions? Yeah. Yes. So when you study Gemara with your students, do you let them use computers and smartphones or you make them read from a printed page? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting question. So so I definitely I've actually evolved a lot on this topic. So I, I used to in my, I used to do a lot of uh, uh, Gemara and Rishonim outside. I used to in my, I used to what I used to do is I used the Barilan uh, search engine for preparing classes and I used to basically print on the on the Barilan sheet. I used to print the Gemara and then I would print all the Rishonim. I would give them basically a packet. And I would say, here's the packet and learn the Gemara and all the Rishonim. And I was very excited about it because I figured it was, it was so much pedagogically, it was so much easier. I could bold the key words. I could highlight the questions, you know, I could italicize the answers. And I'm like, this is amazing. But they just, it was so amazing. They just couldn't, they they were into it. They would do it, but there was like an emotional disconnect. And by the way, I feel this now too, because in the afternoon I teach classes, and not Gemara classes, but Halakh classes, I print everything from the bar city. I give them the pages, and at the end of the class, they hand it back to me. They don't feel the emotional attachment. And then about four or five years ago, I said, you know what, I'm only I'm going to teach them almost exclusively Gemara and Tosfot and the Ran. Why? Because the Ran's in the Gemara in the back, and it looks like a Surah Hadaf. It looks exactly the same. You have the riff in the middle, you have the Ran in the back, you have the Milcham Hashem in the bottom. And it's an amazing experience for me. Why? Because I see my students... Feel so much more emotionally attached to it than they did prior, right? It's the exact same words, right? This is how I started to research the topic because even though it's the exact same words, right, there is something and I spent a lot of time at the beginning of the year talking to them about who's who, right? We, you know, what's going on, on this page? You know, we only discuss them this year, some of the commentaries, but the new fancier versions of the Talmud, you have Rebbe Kiva Ager. And I say to them, like, Rebbe Kiva Ager, you know, if I ask you who's LeBron James, everyone knows who LeBron James is. And most of my students don't know who Rebbe Kiva Ager is. They say, guys, I also like LeBron James, but the, the Mechil is to LeBron James. You got to know who Rabbi Kiva Aikers, right? So that, that I, for me, you know, the, the, the Surah Hadaf has become something I find, I feel more and more connected to. Who is Steinsaltz? So yes. Steinsaltz, yeah. Steinsaltz is Adin Steinsaltz, and Adin Steinsaltz, basically, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz was a great scholar who wanted to make the Talmud more accessible. So maybe he wants to make the Talmud accessible to non-religious uh, Jews who basically, can't, it's impossible, it's, it's it's inaccessible to people. It looks strange it doesn't have it doesn't have vowels. It doesn't have punctuation. So what he did was he took the Talmud and he broke it down. He wanted to make it accessible to secular Israelis, by giving it punctuation, giving it uh, punct by giving it um, a different you know breaking of the page. It looks totally different. If you look at the steinzaltz page, it looks very different than, for example, standard Sword Hadassah. It still has Rashi. It still has Tosot, but It doesn't use Rashi script. I mean, it's again, there's nothing you know, there's nothing heretical about it. It seems totally reasonable. If you were to ask me, like. Yeah, that's a great move. Why not? Why not make the Talmud more accessible to people, right? He didn't do anything wrong. It's not like he violated, you know, one of the 14 principles of faith. But it, it was amazing, the reaction, right? Because again, I think emotionally, people feel very connected to the sort of stuff. Okay, any last minute questions? Okay, thank you so much. I, I really recommend if you're interested in this, I, I only got to the little surface of it, but if you Google online, Joel Finkelman uh, Talmud page, you, you can read the whole article. It's, it's really an amazing piece. He talks even further about how, how the, the sort of Haddaf evolves in the in the in the in the Khumash and the Mikro Kodolod. It's it's really an amazing history. Anyway, thank you so much and uh thank you. Have a great day. Enjoy the Super Bowl.